Yes, indeed. That music tells you it is Sunday morning on Triple H 100.1 FM. Welcome, welcome. Uh, it is uh, Stay in the Loop with Lucy time. This is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people. People in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences. And regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that can found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. This week's show on Stay in the Loop with Lucy is all about palliative care, care that is specifically about supporting a person at the end of their lives or the end of their life. I have always been interested in talking about dying, about what happens, wondering what it will be like and getting slightly anxious about the lack of control I have about how, when, where and why. From a young child, I wanted to talk to people about it and found that talking about it helped me to let go of some of the anxiety and, some, and the other people as well. However old the person I spoke to was, talking about it created more space around the subject and I, I remember the bodies, both of our bodies, relaxed. It was a palpable feeling that has stayed with me ever since and it gave me an innate knowing that it was going to be okay, that in some way we were all going to be looked after. In this episode, I'm going to talk about preparing for, for death when there is time. We're an aging population, we're living longer, but we're also living with one or more chronic illnesses and that can mean the end of our lives are slightly more complicated in terms of the care we need and where we can access that care. It is care that can take many different forms and in the research that I've done, I've found there are lots of websites that can really give us great insights into the care that is available, the conversations we should be having, and also how many of us want to have those conversations. Palliative Care Australia um, breaks down the meanings and um, it has useful information on advanced care planning. So just giving you their blurb on what palliative care is, it's care that helps people live their life as fully and as comfortably as possible when living with life-limiting or terminal illness. Palliative care identifies and treats symptoms which may be physical, emotional, spiritual or social. And because palliative care is based on individual needs, the service, services offered will be different but may include um, the relief of pain and other symptoms, so for example vomiting and shortness of breath, resources such as equipment needed to aid care at home, Assistance for families to come together to talk about sensitive issues. Links to other services such as home help and maybe financial support. Support for people to meet cultural obligations and religious obligations. Support for emotional, emotional social and spiritual concerns. Counselling and grief support and referrals to um, care services. Now, palliative care is a family-centred model of care, meaning that family and carers can receive practical and emotional support. And all three of the guests that I've got on my show today have experience of, of working with not just the patient, but also the family around the patient. You know, let's take it off the web. Let's talk about the human experience. Let's talk about 
the roller coaster ride of emotions and the level of care that we need to be ensuring we can bring to ourselves as, as well as offer the people around us as our end of life comes. For myself, from the moment I worked as an aromatherapist in a complementary uh, clinic attached to a cancer unit in the UK, I always thought I would work in palliative care. I saw the fear of the patient's relatives and carers and the patients themselves when they came into the centre before treatment. Sometimes it was straight after a diagnosis. And I saw the spaciousness in their bodies as they left. It was like they started breathing again. And I started realising at that point that shock and trauma and grief really affects the lungs. There were many different services offered in the centre from cups of tea, information, opportunities to talk to people, hands-on treatments which offered an opportunity to come back into the body. The crazy racing mind, the shock, it all takes you out of your body and into your head, so touch is incredibly important. And I'm also struck by the fact that so many people, when they get old, often say that people have stopped touching them. And they feel at that time they're most fragile, they're most vulnerable. But they're also aware that touch can be rough and uh, where what they once considered normal now feels harsh. My first guest in the studio today and my guest all the way through the show today will be Michelle Crow, who works as a community aged care support worker in northern Sydney, in the northern Sydney area. She is committed to caring and supporting the elderly with dignity and respect so they can remain independent in their own homes for as long as possible. Palliative care is obviously part of this role. She's also a complementary... Can't even say that word this morning. She is also a complementary healing practitioner, presenter and owner of the Wellbeing Sphere Clinics, which are based in Collaroy and Belmain. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Now... You have worked, obviously, in this area in some form of healing and, and working with people for ages. What what made you go into that? Were you always in that or did you have a life before the hands-on healing? Um, yes, I was a graphic designer for 20 years, um, worked in the corporate world. Um, and I myself, I had an experience of getting breast cancer 10, 11 years ago now. Um, and that was when I started to look into how I was living and I decided that once I, once I got the all clear, I decided I'd really like to um, get into helping other people and I, I became very interested in health and well-being. And now you walk the talk, clearly, and you can support <laughs> others to do the same. So what are you noticing in the, the people that you're working with? Obviously, you work with different ages, don't you? Because it's not always the elderly who are in palliative care. Sometimes, obviously, as the, you know, the rise in cancer and the rise in you know, chronic illnesses like uh, kidney disease and, um, and heart disease, it's happening younger and younger. What are the sort of clients that you're working with? Um, I've worked with um, with people in their teens with cancer, with, with one with terminal cancer, and um, quite a few women with breast cancer, um, and a couple of them have also become terminal and, and passed away, and then also the the aged care clients as well. So, and they vary between sort of late sixties to ninety fours. The eldest client I've got at the moment. So yeah, it really is. It spans all ages. And how comfortable are they about knowing that they're going to, to die? The experience that I've had 
there's a level of honesty that comes in because it's it's like someone has just done a full stop and you actually have no choice but to look at how you've lived your life, what else you want to do before you die, um, what what are you noticing in terms of how willing people are to have those conversations? Well, it's quite interesting. Um, most of my elderly um, clients or patients are quite willing to talk about um, death and dying and, um, you know, the, the, the prospect of it being terminal too. Yeah. Um, they seem, it's, it seems to be more the families that have the issue. Um, and so, I, so quite often they feel quite relieved because I go in and talk to them about it in an everyday, everyday matter of a fact way. Yes. And there's no emotion attached to the way that I'm discussing it with them. Um, and it gives them an opportunity to really express how they're feeling. And usually they're quite comfortable with where they're at. Mm. Um, obviously some do have that fear, but um, again, with younger people, it can be, there's a, there's a sh- lot of shock comes in yes. with the initial diagnosis and um, fear but then the, it does come round to them becoming again once once they've had those conversations they start to get an acceptance of it but again it can be the family that wants to fight mm. you know the family want to fight the the even when it's terminal they still want to go into fighting mode um, and it's really understanding that that the surrender is probably key in that in that point for them to really settle into it they'll get a better quality of life yeah, much if better they quality surrender of life. than yeah. if they fight. It's quite interesting. I um, had a conversation with my husband just last night and um, we, we had both agreed and we both know that uh, we don't actually want to be kept alive. We're both DNR, don't keep us alive beyond, you know, if we're not going to have that quality of care. So he said that. I said, yeah, well, you know, I'm the same. And he said, he said uh, yeah, but, yeah, but if you know, I know that's not okay for you. It's okay for me, but it's not okay for you. And I was like, um, he said, I don't want you to go. And I think that's yeah. the thing, isn't it? You know, yeah, definitely. It, it's all very well for us to say that is what we want, but it is vital to tell the people who are around us that that is genuinely what we want. And it's genuinely what we mean that it's, um, as much as someone may want us to stay, if it's not, going to support us if our bodies actually naturally are ready to go it actually is going to cause more pain all round to prolong it yes definitely yeah definitely i think um with my father-in-law my he passed away about 10 years ago now but um his life was prolonged for about three years um with all of the treatments he had um, bowel cancer even when he was terminal they still continued with the treatments and my husband still now speaks about how painful it was um, to watch he actually lost the use of his legs from having um, the chemo quite late on Mm. Um, and that's when he gave up but he he basically then said and expressed to the family look that's enough now I've and I want to just do this with dignity yeah you know, it's very, very painful for, for him and also for the family to watch that very slow yeah. process. My, I had a um, flatmate when I was in my early 20s who, who passed from uh, cancer and it was very quick from the diagnosis to when she actually went and, and we were her family, but she didn't have family around her. We were that family and we each had a different role. So I was the one that always talked to her about 
actually death and the, someone else talked to her about her will and they got all that sorted with her and the other person was in total denial with her and that that just worked you know there was a <laughs> trifecta there we, you know, we had a, every base covered yes um but i found that she was actually really clear when she couldn't go on because it's very tiring and it wasn't that she was going to come through it you know, I think there came a point where she knew she wasn't going to make it through it. And at that point, she was ready to go. And it's not that she didn't want to live. That is, it's totally not, you know, I think it's yeah, really definitely. clear to make to make that difference. It's not that you don't want to be there. It's not that you don't want to, you know, um, be in that relationship anymore, see your children grow up. It's none of that. It's actually that your body is breaking down to such a point where it is painful to be in that body anymore. And the greatest gift I think we can offer someone we truly love is the ability to let them go. Yeah, to surrender, to allow them to surrender and let go. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're going to go to some community service announcements now. And after the break, we're going to bring in two nurses called Jennifer Smith and Elizabeth Dolan, who are dedicated to bring a new level of care to healthcare, and particularly end-of-life care. So all of that after, after this break. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. The, my first guest is Jennifer Smith. is a registered nurse with 22 years experience working in large Sydney metropolitan hospitals. Uh, medium-sized rural hospitals in a medical ward environment. And in the last 12 months as a clinical nurse specialist in rural community palliative care. Now, this means providing nursing care to people with life-limiting illnesses and end-of-life care in their homes, which is not always an easy task. She works closely with families as they're an integral part of caring for the person who is dying. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Lucy. And Elizabeth Dolan. Elizabeth is a committed and dedicated to is, and is dedicated to providing an outstanding quality of care, regardless of whatever she is doing. On completing her registered nurse training in Dublin, she worked for UNHCR in refugee camps in Asia before migrating to Australia in 1987. Since then, she's worked in theatre, day surgery, aged care, community palliative care, and acute and the acute care sector. In working in aged care, she discovered she had a real passion for working with people who are dying and went on to complete a graduate certificate in health. Now, Elizabeth brings with her a tremendous warmth to everything she does. She has a love of people, um, a passion for nursing, and is a very caring and committed woman. So, so I am surrounded, uh, both virtually and in person, by women who just have a love and care of humanity and of people. So welcome you all, all three of you. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank um, you, Lucy. Thank you for joining us, Elizabeth. And it's um, it's really lovely to hear the experience that, uh, that you and Jennifer have in um, that palliative care environment in the nursing community because obviously there are three different levels, aren't there? It's not just... Um, palliative care homes you can it can also happen in the hospital and in the home so maybe Jennifer will start with you what have you noticed the difference between urban and rural settings when it comes to palliative care I guess the main difference between working in the city to working in the country is the level of services that are available um, basically in a city uh, generally speaking 
you've got uh, hospital care, you've got hospice care, you've got community care. And within those, there's a whole range of different disciplines that work together to actually support patients and their families. In a rural area, you have the same thing, but it tends to be a little bit more scaled down. So there might not necessarily be, uh, say in the city, they might have um, art therapy and music therapy that go along with their palliative care service. In the rural areas, we tend not to have those things. So we definitely have nursing care, we definitely have medical care, but even with that, they might be scaled down. Say, for example, where I work in the community setting, if someone is choosing to have their end-of-life care at home, then they would get an hour to an hour and a half a day maximum of nursing care per day. So that means if someone's actually dying at home, then it really relies very heavily on the families to do the bulk of the caring and the bulk of the work, which doesn't, that doesn't say that that doesn't happen in city environments as well. Um, you know, families are really in those positions where they really need to come together and work together. And when I say family, I mean not necessarily blood-related family, but, you know, some people could be, you know, have a very strong community connection or community network or friend network that can pull together and actually support them to die at home. So there's 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 quite a uh, yeah service provision difference, I guess. Yeah, I, I can see that it where where in one you actually could outsource the care. In the second, it very much is. If you only get one to one and a half hours of professional care, that's that's a huge load on the family and the community, which they may well embrace, but they may also not be able to embrace. And, and therefore, you know, um, I just feel the, the loneliness in that, you know, that would actually yeah. exacerbate all of those feelings you get at the end of your life and the fear of the end of your life coming, they would just be exacerbated by that potential. Yeah, we we try really, uh, we work very hard to uh, educate families because one of the things when we're supporting people to actually die at home is that we have to educate families in the detail of care. So it's one of the things I'd noticed when I transitioned from hospital to home uh, to, to community work was that in hospital, you just go in as a nurse and you say, oh, I'm just going to turn a patient. We're just going to, you know, do some personal care. And you tell them what they're going to do, but you don't necessarily go into the detail of what you're doing when you're explaining it to the to the family member. Yeah, yeah. But because, because um, people are actually choosing to have the end-of-life care at home, we actually have to teach people how to transfer from bed to a commode chair if they're still ambulant, how to turn someone in bed, how to wash someone, how to change someone, how to clean their teeth, how to clean their eyes. You know, we have to actually go into really, and of course we have to actually teach them how to administer medication because we're not there for, what, 85, 90% of the time. So yeah. we've got to teach them how to draw up morphine. We've got to teach them how to administer morphine and what to do when things go wrong. So there's a lot of things that need to get covered when people choose to die at home. Thank you, Jennifer. Elizabeth, uh, now you won the New South Wales Health Nursing and Midwifery Consumer Appreciation Award in 2015. Can I first of all say many congratulations for that? Thank you. You know, you got it for um, your work in the community with palliative care patients and their families. And, you know, when you hear what Jennifer shares about the importance of that work, 
clearly you have um, developed an art in that. Can you share with us how you do it? And obviously, as you have said in all of your interviews, which I will I'll link to a couple of those newspaper reports on the website afterwards, you're representing a, a lot of other nurses when you share what you share. Yes, and that's 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 exactly it, um, Lucy. That you know, one person wins an award, but there's a whole lot of people behind that person um, when they win an award. And um, so the award was specifically for the for the work I was doing in the community with uh, a palliative care people, and um, it really was about the understanding that when somebody um, dies, um, whether they're dying at home or in the hospital, in this situation was dying at home, but it doesn't actually matter whether it's in the home or in the hospital. It's really about dignity, a person's dignity in the dying process. This is so important. And uh, as you said, it uh, it was a consumer appreciation award, which is a very... Uh, a, a important award because it is the consumer at the end of the day who is saying whether this is working or not. Yeah. And the whole model that we were working with was about the person being at home, um, having a dignified death. Now, in order to ha- have a have a dignity in the dying process, what's really important is that people um, are allowed to be themselves, that they're allowed to make decisions that feel right for them rather than impose what we think as medical professionals should be how they want it. Um, So that's one aspect of it. So part of that award then was like saying this model is working to not be imposing on people, but to allow to work with people all the time as to what is dignity for them. And it's also very much about a community, the community being part of it. So that a person, you know, all people in, um, you know, you're going through the dying process, but, you know, you've got a whole lot of people that you've known and people want to get involved. So it's, it's allowing, it's allowing all of that. Um, and that, that's a big part of the, the award. And, and also having trained people who are trained not to impose their own views or their own ideas, but to just be with what is occurring. So uh, because in, in the dying uh, process, there can be a lot of sympathy and things that a person um, ends up, you know, having to deal with, the person who's going through the dying process having to deal with. So uh, it's when, when, when you win an award like that, it's about saying, okay, there's something about the model of care that you're using that is really supporting the consumer. Um, Absolutely. I can't, I can't imagine how amazing it would be for the people who are passing to experience what it is like not to have a trail of people come in to say goodbye, but actually to say goodbye without being loaded with emotion. Because as much as we try and hide how we're feeling, it all comes through. But equally, I'm not sure that as a society, we have a literacy, a death literacy, I guess, that that 
means that we know how to do that. So the fact that you're building a model of care in the nursing staff that could then educate and share that the importance of that with the family so that the families can then get the support they need outside that room and talk perhaps less emotionally with the person who is who is passing. Yes, ex- exactly, Lucy. And um, if you, and I do often talk with people who are going through the dying process, that is something that they find such a relief that they can just be going through their process without then having to deal with everything that everybody comes with. And it's not to judge people because, you know, we've all, society doesn't deal with death and dying very well at all. Mm. We all have, un, you know, stuff that, that that we feel that we don't even know that we're feeling that that will just be there when you're with somebody who is going through that that process. But it's very important to have, um, you know, self-reflection to to know you know what what how you feel and to be able to uh, address the issues that come up for you when you're with somebody who is in that in that process and then that person can be left alone to do what they need to do and um it's very important for the families it really supports the families so then this is a question for both of you now how do you build that way of living in your body so that it comes naturally to you I was just I was just going to backtrack a little bit I do um, a lot of advanced care planning with people that I see and so what that means is that I have a lot of discussions about planning what end of life is going to be like so I don't necessarily always see people that are at end of life or that are terminal yeah and and what's really interesting that I've noticed um, is that I can have very frank conversations with people and often they're sitting there and they're saying, no, I've not had these kind of conversations with people before, you know, thank God we're having these conversations. Yeah. And as those conversations progress, you know, sort of getting back to how I take care of myself. So often these conversations bring up a whole lot of things, both for the person that's sitting in front of me, for their family members, obviously. And you can see the level of discomfort in their bodies when we're raising, do you want to be resuscitated as an example? Yes. Um, and, And it's like, you know, for me, it's about if it's bringing up discomfort in them, that's actually okay. I don't need to fix that. Yes, it's 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 just allowing them to sit where they're sitting, and if it's bringing things up, I see myself more as a facilitator in those conversations because it's it's like what I'm doing is opening the door for them, and then I know that those conversations are going to continue, and and I don't necessarily need to be there for that. I can always touch base with them again and have further conversations with them if they need further explanation, further understanding. But coming back to me, it's like well. I don't have to take everything on. It is not my job to take things on. If there's emotions coming up, um, if there's sadness, if there's anger, if there's a a block, like some people absolutely don't want to have these conversations even if they are dying. And Mm. and it's like, well, I can't force anything and it's not for me to fix that and it's not for me to take that on. So I'm I'm not absorbing what's going on in the room at the time and I think that from a nursing perspective, that's really important because we can do that really subtly. We can take things on at a really subtle level and not even necessarily recognise it at the time. So it's it's yeah, for me that's that's a prime importance. Just not taking things on. 
How about you, Elizabeth? Yeah, that's a great um, a great point, Jennifer. Mm. They are, with not taking things on because it's so easy to do that. <laughs> uh, for myself, um, I would say that I've definitely had to learn that to not not take things on, but also like coming back to uh, the understanding that like if I'm not looking after myself, there's no way I can look after anybody else, mm. and. Um, so there's a real focus on caring for myself. And that's the, you know, the ordinary things in terms of, you know, my diet, exercise and those, those very practical things. But also that I'm, that I'm um, you know, I've learned to say no, for example. That's been a big one for me. That, and as nurses, we, we, are, we tend to be not very good at doing this, mm-hmm. learning to say no. But learning to say no when you literally can't do something yes. or when it's just not going to be be productive for anybody, um, that's that's been a huge one. Um, mm. We did a show last week on doctor's health and looking at doctor suicide, the rates of which are, are terrifyingly high. And the feedback that I've had since then is how important that conversation is to be had. And I feel there is a, um, a show to be done and a conversation to be had around nurses and the burnout rate of nurses, because I work with a lot of them in, in public health, and I see a lot of them take on uh, that role as everything you're saying, absorbing all the pain that they see around them, absorbing the consequences of people's choices, you know, in overdoses or, you know, particularly in acute care nursing. And I then, I then look and I, I'm inspired because both of you have re-energized and gone back into nursing um, and you bring a different model of care to it, which I find incredibly inspiring and something that we should talk about as much as possible so that other nurses can actually see how they too can nurse and nurse in, you know, what is a very high pressured environment, um, but not burn themselves out in the process as you've both just shared. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think something that, um, you know, just after Elizabeth was, was sharing, I could feel that, it's the quality of how we are with ourselves. It's how we treat ourselves every day. So yes, we can have a good diet and exercise, but that just turns into something that's essentially functional. Mm. And and interestingly, when uh, you know, as a nurse, you can turn your nursing work into something that's purely functional too. Whereas when you bring in the quality of care, so I find being really gentle, really loving with myself, that actually translates into how that I'm working, but it also feeds me back too. So it's, um, it's it, it, I think that's of primary importance. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that, that, you know, we're talking about a quality of care uh, that we want to provide. And if we're not providing that quality to ourselves, that loving and nurturing, cherishing of ourselves, then we're not going to be able to provide it to our patients, no matter how much we feel we, we want to. And I think that's the key. It's not that we don't, and, and I've, I can only speak as a family member or as a friend who's gone through this. It's not that we don't want to be incredibly gentle and incredibly loving and caring with someone who's in such a fragile state. But our version of normal might be not normal to the person who is so much more fragile than we are an example might be you spoke about brushing teeth I might brush my teeth quite 
in the way I do it and it might be quite rough compared to what is needed in gums that are far more sensitive and actually will bleed a lot easier and might be prone to infection a lot more. I need a, a completely different level of care there. Now, if I have learned how to brush my teeth with more attention, then I will feel that level of, you know, what's rough and what isn't in someone else's mouth perhaps or even putting the covers on or tucking someone in. Can you give some examples of of, uh, of ways in which, I don't know, that, that maybe that could be transferred to other patients and clients and family? Yeah, I can give you some examples. Um, that's a great example, by the way, the, the, the brushing yeah, of the thank teeth. Thank you. <laughs> it's really great because that's exactly what it is like. What it's what you know, what your normal might be might not be somebody else's normal. Yeah. So a big part of it is really being with the person. So it's really connecting with the person. And this again brings it back to dignity because what might be true for one person may not be true for another. Mm. So if you're really with the person, irrespective of what situation you're in, if you're really with them, then you will be able to feel what is actually required. Um, so say, for example, um, you know, some um, some people, for example, might 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 be okay with, you know, a certain level of, you know, like people coming in and, you know, taking uh, taking down their their uh, clothes and and giving them a sponge. Whereas other people might need a lot more, um, you know, like they might want you to to really bring a uh, you know warm in, warm up the room. Yes. Do it at a certain pace. Yeah. Um, you know, and and my my feeling is that all of it, everybody wants that. They like people respond very much to tenderness yeah. and and love, um, um, but we might be a bit bit disconnected from it within yeah. ourselves. A bit and, nervous and to so ask I, for it. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. I know one of my favourite things that I used to do when I used to work night duty or afternoon shift was we had when I worked in the hospital we had sort of heaters in the bathrooms and I would turn them on and that way because you know it's like we've got most of our patients are elderly they're mm. frail they you know that they don't actually retain heat in their bodies like you know say those of us that are more active and running around the ward essentially yeah and I would always turn the heater on and and that way um you know whenever someone had to use the bathroom overnight and there would be many people that would need the bathroom overnight then they'd be in a room that's actually which would ordinarily be freezing and cold so they're getting out of a warm bed into a cold bathroom not a nice feeling so I'd make sure that the heater was on I was like well that I would do that for myself. Like I would make sure mm. that I'm toasty and warm, and, and that I'm not uh, cold in any way. And it was like, you know, they loved it. Everyone was like, "Oh, this is nice." That is so, so it's going. Not a difficult yeah, thing. That's so going on my list. I hadn't thought about yeah. that, but I don't. I already don't handle cold very well. So you know, as I get older, it's going to be so much worse. Now I want to pick up something very quickly because I know that you both got um, to go, but you keep mentioning the word dying with dignity, and um, Michelle and I have both done some research independently and found that that expression has really been taken over by the euthanasia, pro euthanasia team, and and we were both talking off about how much we feel it 
it it's it loses it it means that people don't believe that in palliative care you can die with dignity and what you're showing here and the model of care that you're clearly building is it is that is absolutely possible and and should be the core of what we call for that uh, that no no death should be without that dignity that should be a basic understanding of what happens at the end of our lives can you mm. maybe um seeing as you brought that up elizabeth can you just expand on that a little bit yes i'd love to um and you're you're quite correct it has been taken over a bit in terms of the euthanasia debate um but the thing is that every single person um in, in, in like palliative care is a beautiful um, opportunity to be with people and to allow them to die with dignity mm. and dignity is is literally about you know uh, being with a person like connecting with a person being with them what is it that they require uh, allowing you know a adequate pain management allowing adequate symptom management um allowing them to be to be able to go through the process without um, people feeling like they have to uh, change it for for the person. It's also about seeing that the person themselves, um, you know, when when you're going through the, the dying process, that is a very active kind of process, like a lot happens in that. And that's that's a person's journey. And so it's being with the person. So Absolutely, palliative care, the palliative care model is very much around dignity, being with a person, allowing dignity and allowing compassion. And um, we, it's very important, I feel, that we don't get it, we, we don't get this whole, uh, that that word is not commandeered um, yeah. to mean now euthanasia. It's a very, it's a very big subject. But dignity, look, the truth of the matter is we all deserve dignity. To live in a dignified way, to die or pass over in a dignified way. And dignity will mean different things to different people. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Jennifer, any final words from you? Uh, I think uh, what Elizabeth said is just beautiful. The only thing that I would add is that for me, dignity is about allowing a person that's dying space, giving them space, giving them mm -hmm. space to be who they are. Um, for me, it's about, you know, not imposing my beliefs or ideals on how what a good death is. Um, I think, you know, good death has been something that's 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 been commandeered, like Elizabeth was saying, with dignity. It's it's There's an expectation. So not having that, not going to someone and, and, and approaching them with with the expectations that I may have. So just allowing them to be and, and also allowing the families, but being there to support them both. Wow, you two women have just like blown the airwaves for me. I just feel like I have, uh, I've really just dropped uh, so much uh, of a picture that I perhaps had of, of end of life care and um, I hope that some of our listeners have been able to see what a, an opportunity it is for those conversations to happen for you know for us to honor what someone else wants just in the same way that we would like to be honored ourselves that it is a uh, I don't know I see it as just as I walk alongside teenagers who are 
uh, doing all sorts of extraordinary behaviors, just walking beside someone without judgment and allowing them to make their own choices is what we have to do from the start of their lives to the end of their lives, always offering an affl- a reflection of potentially another way. And you offer that every single day. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Lucy. Awesome will, conversation. Yeah, great conversation to have. And one that we'll we'll come back and we'll have a conversation about uh, nurses and how nurses can be supported in their day-to-day so that we've got a footprint of that on the web as well. Take care. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you. Bye. Bye. How about that? That was awesome. I know. I know. I feel so lucky um, to, to have been able to work the Skype and make that happen. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Radio station 2 Triple H is run according to the code of practice defined by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. This code provides the guidelines for programming, Australian music content, sponsorship and many other standards which uphold the expectations of the community. If you have any queries on the code of practice or think there's been a breach, please phone the station on 9489 3934 or send an email to contact at triplehfm.com.au. You can read the code of practice on the web at cbaa.org.au. And the burnout's a really interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Triple H Healthy Minute. We've got a pretty big family. And I suppose we get through a fair bit of hot water in the average week. I know this affects our energy use a bit, but there's not much we can do about it. I mean, we've got to have showers and wash the clothes, don't we? Did you know that using hot water accounts for around 40% of your home's energy consumption? So it's possible to save a lot of energy and a lot of money by reducing the amount of hot water you use. You can use cold water in your washing machine and only use it when you have a full load. By fitting a three-star rated shower head, you'll reduce your hot water use by up to 50% and a dripping tap can waste the equivalent of 10 bathtubs of hot water a month. So fix them straight away. To find more information on saving energy and water, go to www.neighbours.com.au. That's neighbours, N-A-B-E-R-S dot com dot A-U. Or call the Environment Line on 1300 361 967. Supported by the New South Wales Government's Climate Change Fund. My feet on the ground and I'm here Warm as the sun, I know this is the one It's so clear Um, Yes. Uh, Water playground, I found the jewel in the crown It's right here Mm, Loving the feeling, I got it all going on It's right here Got my feet on the ground, I'm right here. Got right a weight off my mind, it was yeah, here all the time, so clear. Lightened up on myself, took my heart off the shelf, there's no fear. Loving this groove, I got a new way to move, come on, feel.
Welcome, Triple H, 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. So we had a great conversation before we went to the break with Elizabeth and with Jennifer. We're now going to talk about the importance of the maybe the conversations that you can have. Do we get more honest at the end of our life? And how do people react when we get more honest? Michelle, how, what's your experience of people and their level of honesty at the end of their life? My experience with aged care um, clients has been um, really quite remarkable. I've been really surprised. I've gone into their homes. I, I visit people at their, in their homes and um, I haven't come across one client that's not been willing to discuss um, their end of life and, and where they're at. Um, it's been really quite interesting. And they actually, a lot of them have actually expressed um, gratitude and appreciation for the opportunity to really talk about it without me going into the emotion or having any imposition or um, any pictures of how it should be for them. Um, it's just giving them space to really talk about how they're feeling. Um, and a lot of them have, 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 have quite a deep acceptance of where they're at. So it's been, yeah, really quite... a, a an amazing experience. I had one lady who was um, 89 and um, she'd been in Auschwitz and lost 44 members of her family and held a lot of a lot of resentment um, and hurt and anger right through her whole life. And I was I went in for her last six weeks of her life and visited her twice a week. And it, the turnaround with her was quite remarkable, just with me sitting and talking to her and being able to express, her being able to express how she felt with things that had gone on. And I felt that the, the day that she died, actually, she, she was able to talk to me honestly and say that she was actually feeling that, at peace, that she'd actually felt she'd really let go. Wow. Um, and she was smiling that day. And she was at home. She, she had... Um, quite a severe stomach disorder, but she didn't want to go to hospital. So I think she knew that she was dying. Um, but that night she passed away and, and I felt that she actually, um, with having the opportunity to talk really honestly with me for those few weeks, I think it really changed her being able to pass over with to be at peace, basically. It was quite amazing. It's important to allow space for the people, the person who's passing, to have those sometimes difficult conversations, isn't it? I, I know um, we were talking in the break about how do you approach those conversations if you've got, or how do you not come loaded uh, to conversations with someone who's passing? So there have been uh, some situations where I've been around someone who is is passing and yet they've had people around them who've had major issue about the way they've lived and how they've treated each other in their life and you can't come together and pretend that that hasn't happened and yet you both want to get past it because you actually suddenly realize that none of that really matters and how much you love each other so 
really having that ability to have those conversations with each other in a caring and understanding way and allowing yourself to be angry with someone um, but at the same time knowing that you know underneath that anger is hurt and getting support to be able to deal with that you know looking for support outside of that room the person who is sick or passing cannot deal with your stuff at that moment they've got a lot of their own stuff as well as everybody else who comes to visit them their stuff as well so there is so much isn't there yeah definitely I think um just with with the families it's really important that the family members actually get support um to talk about how they're feeling so that they when they go to visit the family member that's in you know is terminal or is is you know, in that dying process, um, that they're not going in and lo- be loaded and bringing all of that emotion into the conversation. So, um, yeah, just by them getting support, which and palliative care is all about supporting the person who's who's in that process of dying and also the families. So there is that support there. Um, yeah, and it's just understanding that the person who's obviously in that situation doesn't need all of the family coming in heavily loaded as well. Mm. It really can And we don't them. mean to, you know, oh, I've no, been that person, a, you know, you, you yeah, might have totally. been that person, you don't mean to at all, you no. just kind of, you're going to miss them. It's how, to, it's how to be okay with missing them, but without making them feel guilty for being sick and for going and knowing that actually it does come loaded. And if you ask anyone who's been sick and who's, I felt the the people coming in and sympathizing with them it it is loaded you've just got to ask the person who's been sick what you know what that feels like as opposed to being the person who is his who is trying to help and be the support because i think i certainly wouldn't necessarily have known what i brought with me as much as it it is feels like to be on the receiving end um and i'm <laughs> i i am reminded of situations and conversations I've had with a number of psychologists who've been on the show who remind me of you know that that self-awareness and the importance of having those conversations but having them with people who can help you unravel them yeah definitely all right we're going to go to a a song now then when we're going to come back I'm going to talk through a couple of blog post that I found um, it's called death dying and passing over and taking responsibility and this um, this blogger comes up with some really interesting things that I hadn't considered um, in terms of the level of detail about how we would like to be taken care of when we pass over or when we're in that dying process so if we are talking about you know writing advanced care directives and writing down what you would like and your advanced care plan documents and maybe we could add some of these to the list very practical approach on stay in the loop with lucy this morning we have been talking palliative care in this episode and i have in the studio with me the gorgeous michelle crow welcome thank you lucy uh it's um, It really has been a show talking about the importance of care and love in our community, the care and love that we get at the start of our lives and that we want to have at the end of our lives and that ability to really create a space around ourselves that we actively engage in when we're well 
or even when we're not so well, when we've had a diagnosis that that prepares us for that time where we feel more vulnerable, where we're less in control of what's happening around us so that the nurses, the family, the children, the friends, everyone knows what we would like. Now, in my research, I came across um, a couple of blogs by a woman called Gil Ray who lives in Scotland. Gosh, she made me giggle. But she really touched on something, and I'm guessing that she wrote these when um, she was she found uh, herself affected by um, a relation of hers dying. One of the things she talks about is the responsibility we have in the lead up to our passing over. And I will I will put this blog on the website afterwards. Have you ever considered or thought about the level of detail in which you would like to be taken care of and pass over? Do you want to die at home or in a hospital? Do you want a TV on or music on the radio? Or would you like silence? You know, do you want um, people visiting you all day? Or do you want your own time and space and set up a time for people to visit that supports you best and and when you feel to how do you lie in your bed would you like to be put in a position that you feel comfortable in or someone else feels you should be comfortable in what clothes do you want to wear is there a particular feel you like on your skin would you like a warm blanket to cover your bed is there a blanket that's one of your favorites what kind of lighting do you want to have main light bedside light Nurses may need a, um, a lot of light in order to do some of their um, procedures, but ultimately, the rest of the time, do you have to have those big lights on? Are there particular books you'd like to have to read? Many families choose not to tell people, no, many people who are dying choose not to tell those around them that they're, that they're dying. They try and keep it to themselves. And I think that lends itself to the conversation, Michelle, you and I had before the break about no, you you kind of anticipate what's going to come as opposed to know what's going to come. Sometimes when we hold it back, we don't actually give people the opportunity to show us the love and appreciation that they want to share with us as a result of perhaps what we've offered them in their lives. Someone yeah, wants to give us something back. What you would really what what you would really like to leave for them. Uh, have you decided what you want to do with your money and what you want to do for your funeral? I know they're, they're not conversations we already have, but they certainly are conversations that I've started having because I can see how appreciative families are when they're in a situation where they feel incredibly vulnerable, they're dealing with the fact that they're sad that you're going. If they don't have to make decisions on your behalf they're actually, that's great. You know, that's a great support we can give people who love us um, to show them that we have thought about them and love them. What were you going to share, Michelle? Yeah, definitely. I've just, um, I did a bit of research into, I know you're going to talk a little bit about this a bit later, but dying to talk. Yes. Um, which is quite an interesting... Great resource, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, amazing resource. Um, and one of the facts that was on there was it says that 82% of Australians think it's important to talk to their family about how they would want, want to be cared for at the end of their life. But only 28% have done so. Whoa! Yeah, so it's a really big issue. 
we need to put a template up. You know, I'll, I'll put a link to this Dying to Talk uh, starter kit, but I will also have Dying to Talk on because we've, you know, really, it's, it's so, we've got to actually get our language. Um, and I know they do death cafes now and it's just about talking about dying and, and what what we want and what might happen and um, just normalizing the conversation just as we do baby showers and talking about about birth um there are other organizations that also support what might they be yeah cancer council have got some re- a really quite an amazing website they've got lots of um stories about people who've been um, receiving palliative care have yes. had palliative care uh, are in the process of having palliative care um there's a, some beautiful stories in there of talking about the palliative care team coming in and being like a, a group of angels that come in to really offer the whole family support and yep. the person who's in that place yeah um there yeah the site's a, a really big resource for all the different types of um uh, palliative care systems and and how you can support someone who's just been diagnosed with a terminal illness, especially I mean obviously they focus more on the different types of cancers, but it but it's relevant for all illness really. Absolutely, as yeah. we talk about the the. Um I want to use the word comorbidities, but it's in layman's terms, it's having multiple illnesses, you yeah. know, because yeah. cancer is unlikely to be the only thing that someone dies from in the end. So um, one of the other things that I think we should really touch on is that process of when someone has died, what what then? I mean, I uh, I know that I would just like to be cremated and that's the end of me. But that isn't how it's always been. Now, you have a story about, was it your uncle that passed? No, it was my actually my cousin. Your cousin. Okay. She was uh, 15 years old, so it was 36 years ago now. Um, and my parents are from Newcastle in England, uh, working class families. And it was tradition that the coffin and the body was placed in the coffin in the lounge room, or as the word my dad used was the parlour. Yeah. <laughs> Um, two days before the funeral yeah and they would um, people would be invited to come in and pay their respects for that two days which is actually in a number of cultures that is still quite normal yeah and it's yeah. called an open casket yeah. um, and it gave the family and the friends an opportunity really to have closure I suppose yes um, and to also have an understanding that death was not something to be feared. Yes. Um, and that it was in those days, I mean, it's only 36 years ago, but, but you know, for my, my father's 84 now, and most of his life that's been the case. He's mm-hmm. the youngest of 12 and all his brothers and sisters, um, pretty much that's how it's been. But more recently now, um, it's not, dying's been taken away from the home mm. um, and taken more to hospitals, etc., etc. And And obviously we're not so familiar with that anymore. It's not become an everyday thing for us. So That's it's true. made the subject much more difficult to discuss. Yeah. Whereas even 36 years ago, that was just a standard thing. We all discussed it. it we, we had time to grieve where... It tends to be nowadays, it's not always the case and in different cultures it's obviously quite different. Um, We tend to sort of brush it under the carpet and don't really talk about death. So That's a really good point and I hadn't really really contemplated it, but we... It is sanitised now, isn't it? Mm, You know, we hand over it to the hospital and, you know, no, we don't want to see the body. But unless you see a dead body, you don't actually appreciate that the 
the soul, the spark that brought that body to life is not there anymore. Though it's very clear it is not there. Exactly. It's so a shell. Yeah. Exactly. Which to me gives me my sense of life and, and the gift that I've been given in life that I'm more than a body. You know, I'm, mm. I'm an energetic being in here because I've seen a dead body. So there's an energy that occupies that space to bring it to life. And you know, when you gone. see a dead body, you know that it's not there anymore. No. I've worked in uh, wet labs with yeah. bodies where we've, you know, with, with my anatomy studies, yeah. we had to actually, you know, feel and hold and touch the bodies and, and um, have a look at their organs and stuff. And it, it was just a body. Their, their souls weren't there. Yeah. So it was, it was okay to actually deal with that. Um, yeah, whereas I think a lot of people are really afraid of, of death and dying and yeah. afraid of talking about it because it's, it seems to have, it's not, it's not something we talk about really anymore. It's such a shame. It's such a shame because I think it just feeds the fear. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the, the pain that we anticipate happens at the end of every life is not necessarily what happens. It can be. There is no question I have seen both. However, it isn't, it isn't always going to be that way. And I, I reckon that if we anticipate the worst it's almost like the the tension in our body is so much that our body has to fight the process which is going to create a, a, a dramatic battle in yeah a way. more tension in more the body tension yeah and then more discomfort definitely and that's a conversation for people who see it day in day out and who who work in you know in that in that palliative care process the maybe the hospice setting where they see people passing all the time so that's where the surrendering is so important yes absolutely i know that um when my friend died so many years ago i remember you know the the palliative care nurses were fantastic and they talked to us because we were really quite young we were one of the youngest um on that particular ward at that time. And so they really looked after us. And what they shared, because we'd stayed with her the entire time, we'd slept in the room, we'd had, you know, girls' nights, movie nights, we'd had the whole lot. And then the one night we all went home was the night that she died. And I knew that that was going to be the case. And they said that that happens so often, they just want to be in their own space. And they go, just when someone pops out the room, um, that that a space is created where they're able to leave their bodies a lot simpler, a lot cleaner. Yeah, definitely. My grandfather and um, grandmother both passed away last November. Uh, they were both 90. Wow. And um, they were both in a nursing home. And um, grandmother um, went, went downhill quite quickly and she passed away. And then um, as soon as she passed away, my grandfather, then within five days, he passed too. Wow. Relate, um, I mean, were they husband and wife? Yeah, they were husband okay. and wife and they passed within five days of each other. But but what was what, just confirming what you were just saying, um, with my grandfather, um, my mother-in-law was with him uh, that evening. And then she, as soon as she left, it was like he had the space then to go, okay, now I can pass. Wow. So it was really quite beautiful. So everyone celebrated their passing instead of it being a really yeah. sad thing. Yeah. And he even had vegetables on his coffin. Oh, fantastic. Because he loved gardening instead fantastic. of flowers. Fantastic. <laughs> Oh, you know, look, I, I don't know what it's going to be like. I know it's it's terribly sad when you miss someone enormously, but I really do hope I can always celebrate what 
a be- what another soul has brought into my mm. life as opposed to be devastated at their passing because if they'd never been in my life I would never have known the whatever they brought to me yeah, so I would always much rather approach it as a you know they've gone home you know yeah. they they've they're on loan in a way and they've now gone home mm. gosh what a lovely story thank you so much you're That's most beautiful. welcome now, um, we might go to another piece of music and then we might just finish up with talking about care. I always talk about that self-care and, and being the change we want to see. Indeed, you are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. And informing our community is what I feel that we are doing in this show today. Palliative care. It's all about caring, really, isn't it? In this show, we've talked to Jennifer Smith and Elizabeth Dolan, who are both nurses in the northern New South Wales region. And in my guest in the studio has been Michelle Crow, who has been working with people in aged care and people in palliative care quite by accident at times. But still there is... It's the grassroots of care, isn't it, Michelle, that is what you bring to every client no matter what age no matter what they present with emotional psychological or physical pain that's what you're bringing to them just a sense of connection with them as people beyond what they're presenting to you with yes um that's one of the reasons why i wanted to go into um visiting people and aged care people in their homes and um i have one couple who i first went in to see them and uh, the guy was a paraplegic and became a quadriplegic although he still had some movement in his arms and um, he noticed the detail of the care that I offered him and I really enjoyed going in and just chatting and talking to them Um, really quite an amazing couple um, both with you know quite quite major health issues that they had to deal with Um, and I it was interesting the things that he noticed were things like the way that I made the bed and he liked to have the bed concertinaed so he used to say you know this I like it concertinaed and then he would say to me you're the best bed maker the best (laughs) concertina yeah the best concertina and I think what what he was really feeling was the energy that I actually made that bed in I made it with real with, with great care and with love and knowing that at the end of the day he was going to be getting back into that bed so that he could actually feel the quality that the bed had been made with and the quality of the care. And he really did notice it, which is why he used to talk about it a lot. And also one of the things, one of, part of the one of the things I used to have to do was to help with his dressings um, with some sores. And what was interesting over the weeks with me just bringing that real care into looking after him, um, the the sores all completely went away. And he'd had those sores for a number of years. I think it was about 10 years. Wow. So um, I think just bringing that real element of real care and love into everything I did and and really gently and carefully um, with all the movements and everything that I did, it really made such a massive difference. And he felt it. And we cannot be that for another person unless we're that for ourselves. So again, testament to the to the dedication that you've had to be kind and caring and tender with yourself, so that you could actually recognise what he needed and what and what service you could bring to him. That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, definitely. It's really important. Self-care has enabled me to no longer have any kind of burnout with the work that I'm doing. Um, That's the number one priority is you can't care for anybody else unless you really, truly care and nurture yourself. And it takes uh, sometimes someone else to come into our lives to say, hey, you, there's another level of care you can go to, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Otherwise, we're like that frog in the boiling water. It's just getting hotter and hotter and we don't notice until someone says, it's, why are you in boiling water? You know, like why? why really? Yeah, yeah. just minor <laughs> things like um, he used to, I used to put a towel over his shoulders yeah. to transport him back to the bedroom to get him dressed yeah. you know with just little things to yeah. just that bring that warmth yeah um and that that was you know those small things can make such a massive difference to everybody's everyday lives and They're the quality of their lives absolutely and then as you bring that to him from that moment on everybody who comes to care for him and wash him he'll say can i have a towel for my shoulders as yeah. you take me back into the room to get yeah, me dressed definitely you know then then we know what what feels good and, and just because someone maybe doesn't have any feeling in the lower half of their body, it doesn't actually mean that they don't get a sense of cold. Oh, definitely. And also, um, you know, with the Dignity. skin, with, with somebody who's a paraplegic, quadriplegic, their skin's very thin and it's very delicate. Ah. And you have to be really careful. Mm-hmm. And some of the carers would be quite rough and they would nick the skin. Right. And then it would take weeks to but heal the sores. Absolutely, major so, infection. So, you know, he he was very careful in, in saying to us, you know, please take care of my legs, yeah. be gentle. And I'd yeah. say we need to be really careful. Lovely. So it was lovely that he he really appreciated that. Thank you, Michelle. What you bring, uh, what you brought today is uh, a beautiful awareness that goes way beyond just talking about palliative care because we can bring that into all of our lives now and into caring roles with people in our lives and with ourselves right now. Yeah, just you know, as much Why wait? All, just, in all areas of life. That's right. Yeah. Um, Leonardo da Vinci said, um, as a well-spent day brings happy sleep, so a well-spent life brings happy death. Love that. Beautiful. So let's come back to choosing to be the change we want to see in the world. I'm going to say thank you to you, Michelle, for joining me. Thank you, Lucy. I really appreciate it being I, on the show. Yeah, I look forward to having you again. It's never, it's never a one-off stop. You've been in before, <laughs> you'll be in again. Um, remember that regardless of what has always happening in your life, you are and will always be you and you are amazing. The key is to reconnect with that space and learn to build a relationship with your body so you can recognize when your body is trying to tell you something is not quite right and then seek support with the appropriate support service, be that mental or physical health. Look for support in the community. It is there. The podcast for today's show will be available through Stay in the Loop with Lucy website and on SoundCloud. And if you want to get updates, then just remember to like the at Stay in the Loop with Lucy Facebook page. And link to all of those spaces are available on the Triple H program page. Next week's show, well, actually, I'm not going to tell you about next week's show. It is going to be a surprise bundle. Uh, just make an appointment to listen next Sunday or listen to the recording on the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website. Um, Till next week's show, remember to take a moment to look after you. Connect with the amazing people in our community. Be kind, be caring, be loved, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM.